We're in a series studying the book of Hebrews. And uh, this week is actually week number seven. And, and we get to one of the main things of Hebrews, which is that Jesus is our high priest. And, and in fact, he's greater than any high priest uh, before him and, and after him. This topic is, if you've ever read Hebrews, you know the author seems to talk about this topic a lot. Yeah, it goes on for chapter after chapter. In fact, we're going to start at the end of chapter four, where we've been for the last few weeks, because that's when this um, topic, this subject comes up, and it, it kind of goes through to chapter, about chapter 10. So it's obviously important. It's one of the primary themes of Hebrews. But to be honest, the subject, in my opinion, it doesn't translate that well to us today, as I, as I think it probably did to the original hearers. And I don't know about you, but when I've read Hebrews in the past, you often wonder, why does, why does the author go on about this so much? You know? It, it just feels like we're always talking about Jesus as our high priest. We get it. You've mentioned it 30 times now or something like that. So I guess it must be important if it's such a big focus. Remember last week we talked about, you know, we were talking about the scriptures because Hebrews says that the word is alive and powerful. Remember that? That was last week. Yeah, last week. And we talked about the interpretive journey and how we had to consider the original audience and seek the principle that translates to us today. It's got to be an eternal principle. So firstly, the original audience, as we know, they were um, these Christians that were Jews, right, living in, in Rome. So when the author of Hebrews talks about the idea of a high priest, and it, maybe it doesn't resonate very well, much with us today, we have to consider that for the original hearers of this message, this high a high priest was a massive part, massive part of their culture. Their Jewish culture respected and honoured the high priest. He was a central figure in their worship of God. He was at the top of their social and religious ladder. So we've got to put ourselves in their shoes and say, okay, maybe that's why he's talking in this way. The high priest was the man that represented them to God. He was the man who petitioned God on their behalf and, and he would offer the gifts and the sacrifices that would atone for our sin. The high priest was the only one who could enter the most holy place in the temple or the tabernacle where the manifest presence of God resided. You know, they wore robes, they had ornaments on, they had very specific duties and rituals. They were very educated in the scriptures. They, they held a position of high authority and power and, the, and their lineage went, you know, it was very specific. It went back through um, Aaron and, and, and the tribe of Levi. Now we've got this author of Hebrews saying, Jesus, he's now our high priest. He, he wasn't from the tribe of, of Levi, by the way. But they're saying he's now our high, our high priest and he's even greater than what you're used to when it comes to the priest, you know, the, the one that oversees us and oversees our, our spiritual lives and more. So for the original audience, this is a huge change in how they were going to connect with God. All this talk of, of a high priest was significant for them. No longer was the one who represented God's followers some uh, high uh, person we could never perhaps hope to even you know, see or, or talk to now our representative was God's son, God's son. And, and we're in direct relationship with him. He lives in us. You know, this is a big change of thinking. You know, this is, you know, Jesus talked about uh, new wineskins, remember, as well. It, it's, it's a new way. And according to Hebrews, 
In every way, he is far superior to any high priest that came before. You know, he was, he was higher than Aaron. He was higher than um, all of the priests through, that we read about through the, through the um, Old Testament and New. So today we'll read the end of chapter 4. We're going to read part of chapter 5. We're going to read a chunk of chapter 7. Then at the end, we're going to go back to chapter 4 to finish. <laughs> and can I just say, today there's going to be a lot of scripture. All right, I'd say more than half of my message today is just going to be reading scripture, which is all right. Okay? If you're wondering about all the bits we skip over, you know, what about chapter 6? What about the rest of chapter 5? And what about chapter 8 and all that sort of stuff? We're going to come back to some of those things because there are some other subjects in there we're going to tackle. But I really wanted to try and, and pull together a picture of this idea of Jesus as our high priest. So we're going to start, as I said, in Hebrews 4. This is the introduction. Verse 14, so then, since we have a great high priest who has entered heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to what we believe. This high priest of ours understands our weaknesses, for he faced all of the same testings we do, yet he, he did not sin. So let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. There we will receive his mercy and we will find grace to help us when we need it most. As I said, I'll come back to that. Okay. So we're going to jump into chapter 5 and 7. So again, as we read, the question I'm asking is, what do we learn about the high priest from these passages? And how, how does that relate to Jesus as our high priest? How does it affirm him as our high priest? So here we go. Hebrews 5 verse 1. Every high priest is a man chosen to represent other people in their dealings with God. He presents their gifts to God and offers sacrifices for their sins. So, firstly, you know, A, the high priest had to be a human. You know, this is one of the reasons Jesus had to come and be man. And, and B, the high priest represented others by offering sacrifices on their behalf. It doesn't mention it specifically here, but only the high priest could offer the sacrifice for sin on the Day of Atonement. And as we know, Jesus offered the ultimate sacrifice for our sin. So Jesus is acting like our high priest. So far, Jesus not only satisfies those two requirements, you know, he's, he's smashing it out of the park. Keep reading, verse 2. And he is able to deal gently with ignorant and wayward people, thank, thank you, Lord, because he himself is subject to the same weaknesses. That is why he must offer sacrifices for our own sins as well as this. So the third thing, a high priest is able to, to deal gently with his people because he can identify with them. That's what the author's saying. He too had to struggle with those weaknesses. And in a similar way, Jesus deals gently with us as, a, as our high priest because he lived as a human like we do. He can identify with us. He's not just God in heaven away from us. He was here with us. He gets it. He understands pain and suffering and temptation. Now, there is an obvious thing that he deviates from here with human high priests. He had no personal sin to offer a sacrifice for, like the human high priest did. He went a big step further. He offered himself as the perfect sacrifice. So the third thing is um, that the high priest deals gently with his people, and Jesus absolutely smashes that out of the, the park as well. Verse, number, verse 4. 
And no one can become a high priest simply because he wants such an honor. He must be called by God for his work, just as Aaron was. This is why Christ did not honor himself by assuming he could become high priest. No, he was chosen by God who said to him, You are my son, today I have become your father. And in another passage, God said to him, You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. So the fourth thing, important point. The high priest is appointed by God alone. And so the author points back to Scripture to say, yeah, that's what happened with Jesus. He was God's appointment. So again, Jesus is, I don't want to just say tick in the box, but he's, he's meeting the standard. He's exceeding the standard. Verse 7, while Jesus was here on earth, he offered prayers and pleadings with a loud cry and tears to the one who could rescue him from death. And God heard his prayers because of his deep reverence for God. Even though Jesus was God's son, he learned obedience from the things he suffered. In this way, God qualified him as a high priest, a perfect high priest. And he became the source of eternal salvation for all those who obey him. And God designated him to be a high priest in the order of Melchizedek. So the fifth thing, very important, Jesus qualified himself as high priest through his actions. His unswerving obedience, his submission and devotion to God through his suffering, that, that stands him apart as qualified. This is the foundation for his superior, perfect priesthood. Even under the most brutal suffering, he remained perfect in his devotion to God. He qualified himself. Then verse 10 points to Melchizedek. You've heard his name twice, I think, as an example of the kind of high priest he's talking about and in several places states that Melchizedek, you know, he was, he was this priest in the Old Testament, in the old times, that was superior to the Levite priests. So who on earth is Melchizedek? Have you ever wondered? Yeah, let's be honest today, just honest. Not really sure who Melchizedek is. Is there anyone game to put up their hands and say, yeah, I reckon there's more than the hands that went up. <laughs> That's okay. Because the story actually goes back to Abraham in, in Genesis 14. You know, pre-Aaron and the Levites. But helpfully is repeated here in Hebrews chapter 7 for us. Again, we're going to read a large section. I'm going to stop along the way and make some short points as we kind of wrestle with this, this concept that the author wants us to know and why it's important. So Hebrews 7, we're in now. Verse 1. This Melchizedek was king of the city of Salem and also a priest of God most high. When Abraham was returning home after winning a battle against the kings, Melchizedek met him and blessed him. So the first thing in chapter 7 here is that Melchizedek, we're talking about Melchizedek, he had a dual role of king and priest. So you can see why he's a good example, right? King and priest of Salem. Again, foreshadowing Jesus, who would be king and priest. Salem, by the way, was the early name for Jerusalem. So he was the king and priest of Jerusalem, of all cities. Can you see the connection starting to happen now? Why it makes sense that we can point to him as an example for Jesus? Verse 2. Then Abraham took a tenth of all he had captured in battle, and he gave it to Melchizedek. The name Melchizedek actually means king of justice, and king of Salem means king of peace. There is no record of his mother or father or any of his ancestors no beginning or end to his life. So 
he remains a priest forever, resembling the Son of God. So this is, again, an important point. Melchizedek is an eternal priest. You know, he wasn't related to Abraham, so there's no actual connection to the Israelites, which is interesting when you, when you think about there were probably people groups beyond Abraham and the Israelites who were followers of God in this time that we don't necessarily know much about. They were still, these guys, you know, Abraham and the Israelites, well, the Israelites were still to come. And yet Genesis says, this unknown man from an unknown people was a priest of God most high. And the big point, though, that Hebrews wants us to know about Melchizedek is that he represents an eternal priest. You know, there doesn't seem to be a beginning and an end to him. There is no, uh, well, likewise with Jesus, he is our eternal high priest. So again, another reason why he's a good example of the kind of high priest that Jesus is. Verse 4, Consider then how great this Melchizedek was. Even Abraham, the great patriarch of Israel, recognized this by giving him a tenth of what he had taken in battle. Now the law of Moses required that the priests who are descendants of Levi must collect a tithe from the rest of the people of Israel who are also descendants of Abraham. But Melchizedek who was not a descendant of Levi, collected a tenth from Abraham. And Melchizedek placed a blessing upon Abraham, the one who had already received the promises of God. And without question, he says, the person who has the power to give a blessing is greater than the one who was blessed. In other words, there was no human priest higher than Melchizedek. And so he's the right one to contrast with Jesus, to point us to Jesus. And then Hebrews switches to Jesus to make sure that you're getting what he's saying, that what, and you're following what he's saying, that Jesus is like Melchizedek for all of these reasons, but he's even greater than he is. You know, he was, he was the example, and Jesus was even greater. So we keep reading. Like I said, a lot of scripture today. Verse 11. So if the priesthood of Levi, on which the law was based, could have achieved the, perfect, uh, the perfection God intended... Why did God need to establish a different priesthood with a priest in the order of Melchizedek instead of the order of Levi and Aaron? And if the priesthood is changed, the law must also be changed to permit it. For the priest we are talking about belongs to a different tribe whose members have never served at the altar as priests. What I, thankfully, he explains himself. Here's what I mean. Our Lord came from the tribe of Judah and Moses never mentioned priests coming from that tribe. This is important for our original hearers to understand. Because their biblical tradition was, we're looking to the priests from the, the tribe of, of Levi. So the author of Hebrews has to give them Melchizedek as the good biblical, and he is biblical, a good example of why it's okay for Jesus now to be our high priest. You know, hey, you, you Jews, who've, you've... You've followed the high priest for this reason all this time, and I'm telling you now it's Jesus that's your high priest. And here's why it's okay. And here's why it's good. All right, still going. Verse 15. This change has been made very clear. By the way, you're keeping up there, Zach, with the screen. Are you guys following along? Excellent. Thank you. Well done, mate. This change has been made very clear since a different priest 
who is like Melchizedek, has appeared. Jesus became a priest, not by meeting the physical requirements of belonging to the tribe of Israel, of Levi, but by the power of a life that cannot be destroyed. And the psalmist pointed this out when he prophesied, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Yes, the old requirement about the priesthood was set aside because it was weak and it was useless. For the law never made anything perfect. But now we have confidence in a better hope through which we draw near to God. And then I'm going to skip a bunch and go down to verse 26. He is the king of high, of high priests. So he's the kind of high priest we need because he is holy and blameless and unstained by sin. He has been set apart from sinners and he has been given the highest place of honor in heaven. Unlike those other priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices every day. They did this for their own sins first and then for the sins of the people. But Jesus did this once for all when he offered himself as the sacrifice for the people's sins. The law appointed high priests who were limited by human weakness. But after the law was given, God appointed his son with an oath and his son has been made the perfect high priest forever. <sighs> Sorry, that was a lot of reading. But I felt like those were the important bits we needed to hear. And I hope now, when you're reading through Hebrews, you can get a sense of, oh, I think I see. To be honest, the NLT is so helpful to understand Hebrews in these passages. In other words, Jesus has replaced the old flawed system of sacrificial atonement with himself, the perfect, unblemished sacrifice, the perfect, eternal high priest. He is our high priest at his Father's right hand in glory, representing us. The old covenant's done away. There's a new covenant that's come. I'm probably going to speak about covenant in the coming weeks. So I hope this crash course of Melchizedek and Jesus as our high priest is making sense. I encourage you, you know, read all of it, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10. You can do that in one week, I reckon. Give it a go this week. But now I want to return to chapter 4 to finish off today's message. When I say finish, there's a little bit to go. Because, <laughs> yeah, I don't want to give you some false hope there. But let's read it again. And hopefully the context makes a bit more sense now, okay? So here we go, back to chapter 4. So then, since we have a great high priest who has entered heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to what we believe. Because this high priest of ours understands our weakness. He faced all the same testings we do and did not sin. So let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. There we will receive his mercy and we will find grace to help us when we need it most. You know, we've established why we see Jesus this way and what it means for us. And then Hebrews goes on and, and, and says, you know, hold firmly to what we believe. Hold firmly. And who we believe in. Hold firmly, not loosely. Firmly, I want you to just think it for a second about how, how tight do I hold on to Jesus? To what I believe. You could probably tell yourself. Because our high priest is exactly what we need. Replace the word priest with, let's say, um, if it helps you, with pastor. You know, I, I know it's different, but perhaps it helps you a little bit. You know, maybe shepherd is a good word. Just to help us with some context. 
he's the pastor you, he's the best pastor you could ever have. If you're looking for a perfect pastor, you can find it. You, you definitely won't find it in me. You will find it in Jesus. I promise you, you'll be disappointed in the things that I do at times, but not with our perfect high priest. He has done and continues to do everything he can so that you can make it, so that you can flourish. He opens the door to a new, better, redeemed life. But if we don't hold firmly, we drift away, don't we? Remember the message from, I think it was week one or two, one of the first messages in Hebrews says, you're drifting. Don't drift away. Hold tight, not just through going through the Christian motions, but holding on to Jesus, a bit like Isabel said. Learning what that actually is for us. When I think of holding on family, I'm reminded of the women who saw Jesus. They came to the tomb and they realized it was him. And they ran to him. And, and it says, I think it's in John, they, they, grew, they held on to his feet tightly. I reckon he was, they were squeezing around his ankles there so tight. You know, it's like when your kids hold on to your legs and you've got to walk like this and they're not letting go. Maybe it was just me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you had that happen, Pastor? Yeah. But they were holding on for dear life. What a great image that is. It's, a, it's different from someone who's holding on loosely, you know, kind of stays back from Jesus. Don't run to him and grip on. The people who hold on tend to live more content lives in my experience. They, they trust God to provide for their needs. They pray about everything. They know their scriptures well. They, they have great compassion and care for others. They love to build up the people around them. They love the church because Christ loves the church. They, they live to serve and to please Jesus. They're very quick to forgive. They look forward to Christ's return. They really do hold on and trust him, even when the storms are coming, you know. They anchor. Those who hold loosely, they... they we get easily distracted. We get tempted by the world. We're focused on self instead of others. You know, we're quick to judge. We're, our, our faith kind of looks more like a hobby than a life of surrender. We lack faith. Let's hold tightly to what we believe. Let's hold tightly to Jesus. The second thing that you see the author in Hebrews say there is that you can and you should approach God boldly. You know, that means that you can walk to him with confidence. You don't have to shrink back. He's not aloof and unreachable like some priests might be. You know, he understands us and he knows our weaknesses because he, he lived. He lived it and he loves us. And we remember that we can come to him, we can come close to him. In fact, I think it's what he desires most of us because how many times do we hear him saying the scriptures, would you just come to me? Would you just come to me? We can actually do it boldly because of what he did on the cross. James says, we draw close to God. When we draw close to God, he draws close to us. And Hebrews says, it's right 
there close to the throne where he sits that you find the mercy and the grace where, when you need it most and you don't have to tremble as you approach. And I remember, you know, as a, as a young child, you, you know, I spent about five years as a child growing up in, in Alice Springs and I remember the church we attended there. It was the John Flynn Memorial Church, beautiful church. I got to see it again when I was out there in July. But I remember as a kid, and this is probably just my impression, it's probably not completely true, but I remember the, the minister, just before the service started, would come up out of the back room and, and lead the service. And from what, I, what it felt like to me was then he would go back. And, there, and I don't ever really have a recollection of him knowing me or I'm knowing him after five years, right? And again, maybe it's just because I'm a kid and I don't know what's going on around me. I'm just giving you this story for the context here of what it can feel like. Jesus is not like that. Doesn't hide himself away in the back room, you know, just to do the religious bits and then disappear again. When I think of our high priest, our pastor, our shepherd, I think of Jesus. I think of someone whose door is always wide open in his office, who has a, a seat for me to sit at any time and just chat. I think of a Jesus, maybe this one's just me, who, who makes the best cup of coffee you could imagine. Yeah. The best coffee. He was gentle and humble and filled with grace and understanding and, and wants the best for me. I feel like I can boldly just knock on that door and say, can I talk right now? And his word says, approach me boldly. You know, come to me. And because he wants the best for me, sometimes he's really firm. And sometimes he's honest. Well, of course, he's, <laughs> he's always honest. But you know what I mean. He... Sometimes I, he'll tell me what I need to hear. He'll be direct, which I appreciate. I thank Jesus that he's done that in my life with patience and compassion and deep, deep love for me. That's what I'm hearing out of Hebrews. If you don't have that kind of relationship with Jesus, if you can't approach him boldly, he's made a way for you to do that. If you feel like you're not good enough to go to Jesus, if you feel like there's too much in your life that he might, you feel like he might um, condemn you for or something like that, he's saying, no, 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 I've taken that already and paid the price for that thing. I'm ready for you just to come in here because I love you and, and, and be in my office and sit in that chair and drink that cup of coffee with me. I want you to hear that today. That's the God that we follow and worship. It's in the scriptures. You can approach the throne with boldness because of Jesus on the cross. He took it away, the thing that's between you and God, paid that price for you, and wants to forgive you for it. I'm going to invite you today. You know, maybe it's the first time and you've heard about God and Jesus, you've been to this church for some time. Or, or maybe just recently, 
I want to invite you today to connect with him, to go into the office, you know, the room out the back, so to speak, where the door's always open, and be forgiven, and for you to commit to, to Jesus and be in his family and, and receive eternal life. I want to invite you to do that today. The Bible says that you have to confess it with your mouth, that Jesus will be your Lord, and believe it in your heart that he rose from the dead so that you can be saved. I want to invite you to do that today, if that's you. Secondly, if your life has been with, with God for a long time, but you kind of been backing out of that office, and you don't get in there very often anymore, you're not holding tightly, it's loose as a goose. You know, today I'm saying, get back in. Let's do that, church. Let's hold on to what we believe. Let's hold on to Jesus tightly. We've discovered today that he is worthy to be that person, to be that God. So I invite you to um, close your eyes and bow your heads with me. And if today it's, you're hearing this word from the scripture and you want to commit to Jesus today, I invite you to do that. You can just echo a little prayer in your heart that I'll say out loud and you can say it quietly in your heart. Lord Jesus, I recognize you as God. And I admit my, my sin and my need for you. I ask that you would forgive me. I believe that you are now my Lord. I believe that you rose from the dead. Come and live in my life. I commit to you today. I hold firmly to you. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. And if today you've known God for a long time and you, you know you're not holding on tight, the good thing is that, you know, that grace and mercy is always there ready for you. God desires you um, in close relationship. You can commit your life to him afresh today. I invite you to just take a minute to do that. So Lord, we, we honour you as our great high priest. You are the perfect one, the eternal one. You have no weaknesses and flaws. You represent us to your Father. We thank you that you love us.